Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of our Seven Investing Podcast. I'm Seven Investing founder and CEO Simon Erickson. Those who know Seven Investing know that we have seven investing principles. And the first of those principles is that investing is indeed personal. There is no one right answer to investing. It's okay to have different approaches, whether you're a growth style investor, an income investor, a value investor. There are so many different approaches to the stock market itself. And I'm so glad to be welcomed by two of our network affiliates on today's show. We're also aligned with that same mission, who also very much believe that investing is personal. My first guest is Kelsey Willick. She is the co-founder and CEO of Tardy, a financial independence application that she created. She's also the author of Not Your Boyfriend's Financial Advice. And I'm also joined by Alan Sokloff. He is the founder and CEO of Cruising Altitude, also a financial newsletter to help people invest in the stock market and get a better hold of their finances. Kelsey and Alan, hey, thanks for being uh, with me here on the 7 Investing Podcast this afternoon. Thank you so much for having us. Of course, excited to be here. Well, Kelsey, let's start with you. Uh, you know, you have um, started a blog, which was not your boyfriend's investing advice, really aimed, it looked like, at getting women to be more involved in the stock market. Can you tell me a little about what prompted you to create this blog? Yeah, so uh, this past year, I left my job at Goldman Sachs to pursue a company called Tardy to get more women investing. Women currently make up only 8% of investors, yet control 83% of buying power in the United States. I've always thought that the buying power of women is huge, but the investing power is untapped. And when I was conducting consumer research, uh, I found that not only 84% of women feel misunderstood by investment marketers, but a topic that continued to come up was, I just take my partner's investment advice, or I just take my boyfriend's investment advice. There was a major lack of autonomy when it came to finances. So that's why I started my blog to make finance fun, accessible, something you want to learn about rather than you feel you have to learn about. And finally, I aim to reduce shame in regards to money. Many people think maybe my blog is just catchy titles and humor, but it's so much more than that. It's taking away the shame that women feel in regards to not only sexuality as they feel shame in talking about money. I, I aim to feel reduce and remove the shame from both um, with the subject matter. That's fantastic. And knowing that investing is personal, different people have different styles. Do you have any advice or, or coaching for, for couples that might have different opinions about how to invest in stocks? Say that one, one partner of the couple wants to be a growth style investor, really go for the gold, kind of find those tech companies. The other wants to be much more conservative or more of a dividend or safer type of investor. How, do, how can couples approach investing if they have different styles? Yeah, I think that's where education comes into play. Uh, what's right for your partner might not be right for you. And the only way you can figure that out is if you get educated first and find where your values align. Uh, I think so many people in today's day and age, they get started before understanding, you know, what are my goals, what are my priorities, and what do I understand? So where, again, so much empowerment comes into play is educate yourself first, figure out what makes sense to you. And uh, something I also firmly believe is don't invest in anything unless you understand it. Um, and that takes time. And again, 
many partners don't have the conversation. They often just tell their significant other, this is what you should do rather than what do you think we, we can do? What are your goals and where they align? Um, so it, it's definitely an extremely personal conversation, but it starts by, you know, not only it, it starts by giving people empowerment to have autonomy over investment decisions. They don't just need to listen to a partner while they can make uh, decisions in tandem. It, it's often about what's finding what's right for each of them. I have read your blog. It's very educational. It's, it's an excellent, you've done an excellent job of taking complex financial topics and distilling them down into a way that's understandable and relatable for people. Uh, back to the point that you said about really trying to empower women, you know, specifically this demographic. Do you feel without broad, maybe making this too broad of a generalization, but do you believe that there's anything that women tend to invest differently than men when they're looking at the stock market? So uh, not only is it my opinion, but statistics support it, and they absolutely do. Women maintain around 71% of their wealth in cash in comparison to men that maintain around 60% in cash, and they often tend to be much more risk averse. I believe this stems from rhetoric. Women are told to save, save, save. You spend, spend, spend too much. Never to invest, invest, invest. And as a result, uh, women take only about, you know, 4% of good financial risk in their portfolios. They're more likely to be impoverished by retirement, but uh, it firmly stems from fear and anxiety around investing and putting your money to work. Ironically, women are actually empirically better at investing. While the stats are very minor, it's, you know, something around one to 2% that they are better investors. They just don't know it and they don't know how to take the appropriate risk due to the rhetoric and not being spoken to by many financial marketers. That's fantastic, Kelsey. And one more question before I, I switch gears and go over to Alan. I've got to ask a, an out of left field, completely off the wall question for you. I followed a lot of what you've been posting on Twitter. One of the topics has been cryptocurrencies lately. Do you have a stance or thoughts about cryptocurrency right now? Yes. And before I say anything on crypto, I want to be super clear. And that's why I admire your podcast and organization so much. We all make money differently, so we should be able to invest differently. Uh, I think everyone should have emergency savings accounts, be maxing out retirement funds, have diversified long-term portfolios, but we all accessorize differently. And I see crypto as an accessory. I personally uh, speculate on it. I trade it, but with only a small sliver of my portfolio. I got comfortable with an amount I was fully comfortable losing. And uh, I invest with a similar strategy as I do with investing in equities where I dollar cost average uh, and I diversify across cryptocurrencies. That being said, I am highly skeptical of the marketplace and uh, things like happen, th things like last night uh, where we saw a dip from around 30 to 40% in the marketplace only proves that, you know, um, it is so spect uh, speculative and I, I'm, I'm, I'm even suspicious. So uh, while I do think that if it makes sense to you and you understand it, and keyword understand, you should never invest in something if you don't understand the marketplace. Um, but if you do understand it and you do your due diligence on, you know, what's blockchain, what are these cryptocurrencies, who's behind them, then I don't see why you can't take calculated risk in them. It is certainly a volatile accessory indeed when you're talking about cryptocurrencies. And Kelsey, for people that do want to have a better understanding of financials and the market, how can they get a hold of you? What's your blog or your Twitter that you'd like them to reach out to you at? 
Yeah. Um, so my, my Twitter is Kelsmills1. Um, my, my nickname as a kid used to be Mills because my brother could not pronounce Kelsey. He could only pronounce Melsey. Um, and my blog is not your boyfriend's investment advice. You can just search it on Substack uh, and that's an easy way to follow me. And if you're curious to follow along with my company, you can go to tardyapp.com if you're interested in being a beta user. Perfect. And that's definitely great advice to getting people started thinking more about their financial future and getting more involved with, with financial concepts. Uh, Alan, let me bring this to you. You've also started a newsletter, Cruising Altitude, which is aimed, as I understand it, at getting millennials more interested in investing. Yeah. So basically, the goal of Cruising Altitude is to get Gen Z and millennials. We've gotten a little bit bigger. Um, but the idea of those, let's say, 18 to 35-year-olds, people that are either starting to learn about the market or making money to be investing long-term. Uh, as everyone here knows, the power of compounding growth is one of the greatest wonders in the world. And the earlier you start, the earlier, earlier you start investing and learning, the more uh, valuable and bigger your assets can be when a retirement comes around. So that's why we want to get started early and often. And then on top of that, there is a um, both in life and in finance, a desire for um, thing, getting things quickly, a lack of patience. And often in the market and in life, the best things require patience and require consistency. So what we are really trying to do is preach that, that the stock market, it's rigged in your favor. If you give yourself time, if you do the proper due diligence on opportunities, and um, we want to make long-term investing exciting too. It's not boring. We can do it and have some fun in the process. Absolutely. And what a powerful time to start investing. The power of compounding certainly in your favor the earlier and earlier that you get started. Uh, 13 to 35, or I'm sorry, 18 to 35-year-olds, you said that's a lucrative demographic for much of the business world. Everybody wants to figure out how to appeal to Gen Z. How do 18 to 35-year-olds think about investing in the stock market? It's a great question. I think for the most part, especially now, um, from my experience, not in the best way. Uh, the idea of putting $1,000 into something and, or let's say you have $1,000 in your account, you put $700 in the market and 300 in cash. You like, um, philosophically, you want to see the stock drop, right? So you can get a little bit more and um, have a longer growth horizon, but people don't have that patience. They get really nervous and really scared when they see their capital dropping. And I get that. I understand that um, because um, you don't want to lose your money, but it's important to realize just like when a stock is up 20%, you haven't made that money. And just like when it's down 20%, you haven't lost your money. And it's important to go in from day one with that long-term perspective. And I think at, at the same time, too, it's um, people from that 18 to 35 demographic are really willing to learn. And to, if you show them, hey, stick with me, trust me, this works, especially when it's just not me saying that, but I have decades and decades of uh, stock market performance behind me that people are willing to learn. It's just a matter of finding a trusted source to kind of help them on their journey. And that's the niche that we're trying to fill. We just saw a kind of the pinnacle of impatience in the market with Wall Street bets uh, promoting GameStop and everybody seemed to rush into this and lost a lot of money. A lot of people were burned from the aftermath that came from this trade. Do you think that the this story as a whole 
which is fascinating in many ways, but just the overall concept of what happened with GameStop investors. Was this a net positive in convincing millennials to invest long-term because they could get burned? Or is this a net negative because they saw a bunch of people going out and making a ton of mon money really, really quickly and they want to mimic that? What is your thoughts about GameStop and how that has affected the thinking about the stock market for Gen Z? Yeah, so uh, a lot of people give a lot of different opinions. Of course, for a percentage of people, this is good because it had them focus on the market. But uh, I think for the majority, it was not good. I, I, uh, Charlie Munger recently had a quote I think it was at their big, whatever they call it, in Omaha, um, but the Super Bowl of Berkshire. Uh, but uh, he was saying how the worst thing that could happen to you is making money from a GameStop or a cryptocurrency. This isn't my opinion. This is what he said. Uh, and uh, I think that, so that's the worst thing that can happen because then you're going to be looking for the next GameStop, the next cryptocurrency. And I think that's where it can become very dangerous. So and it's really interesting for myself personally to watch how I developed. I've been investing. My dad got me into it when I was really young. I had my own account when I was 13. Uh, but um, the, the, the thing, things have really changed. And I don't think um, for the better, I lost my thought process there, but I do not think GameStop is good. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, certainly. Certainly some aftermath and some collateral damage. Oh, go ahead, Alan. Yeah. What I was going to say. Yes. Perfect. It takes you away from the long-term perspective in, in goals that you should have when investing in the market. I have really, um, I don't get too up or down by the day-to-day -day of the market because I've chosen stocks. I've researched stocks that I like, and I know for the thesis to come true, it takes years and not days or months. Perfect. And my off the wall, out of the left field question for you, Alan, I know that you are a sports superstar. Do you draw any comparisons uh, at basketball, I believe? Is that right, Alan? You're a basketball player. Back in high school, it's a tri-sport athlete. Tri-sport. Tri-sport. I stand corrected. Okay. Yes. Now, Alan, is there, any, is there any comparisons that you draw between sports and investing? Yeah, 100%. I think um, there's three that come to mind. One is management matters, right? Who is the GM of the team? Who is the coach of the team? Especially being a Cleveland Browns fan, we have not been blessed with the best management um, <laughs> over the years, but it looks like we're finally in the right direction now. Um, but when you're talking CEOs of companies, as an investor, you have such little impact, if any, on what is happening in the company. So two of my favorite companies are Viacom CBS and Callaway Golf. I know way too much about Bob Backish. I know way too much of their CEO. I know too much about their CEO, CFO, Naveen Chopra. I know too much about their chief streaming officer, Tom Ryan. I need to know GMs. I need to know the coaches. Who is making these decisions? Callaway Golf, Chip Brewer, um, their CEO. When you look at his history and what he's accomplished, whether with Adams Golf or Callaway Golf, the writing is kind of on the wall, especially if you pair it with good fundamentals and a good product of the direction of the company. And I think that's the same with sports. And then I'll just throw one more in here. Um, patience, patience, and patience. That, especially with younger talent, we can uh, equate it to growth stocks, right? Uh, they're going to have really good times, really bad times. So the most important thing is being patient. And same thing with stocks, that don't get too high when the top prospect has a great game. Don't get too low when he has a rough game. Give him time. Trust what you saw in him when you originally drafted him. And um, obviously, 
keep an eye on his development. But um, yeah, I think those are a couple similarities. Yeah, and, and I'd like to open this up to a couple of questions that I'd like to ask to both of you here as we close out the podcast. I might start with Alan because I think this is a continuation of what you were just describing, Alan. But my first question is really, what type of investor do you self-describe as and why are you investing in the market for your future goals? What goals do you have that you want to invest to achieve? So Alan, go ahead. If you continue your previous thought. Yeah. Um, so I think to answer that truthfully, my philosophy is developing and evolving. And I think that's great. I think, um, I think it's a problem if I'm sitting here at 23 years old saying I have all the answers. Uh, I am so open to learning. I'm confident in my approach. So I see my approach really two-pronged. Um, I have a portfolio of growth stocks and then a portfolio of more um, GARP stocks, growth at a reasonable price. My growth stocks, I have much more a uh, 10-year vision. And I think that's a benefit that I have of being so young. And I think if Warren Buffett and Munger are investing for forever at their ages, I think all of us can be doing that regardless of our age. And then um, a more uh, fundamentally driven portfolio like of Icom, CBS, Callaway Golf, which I follow very closely and, and really try to understand why the fundamentals um, don't necessarily, um, the fundamentals aren't baked into the stock price. I'm more passionate about my guard portfolio because I think in many ways, that needs to be a little bit more actively managed um, than a, a growth portfolio. And then one, one more philosophy personally is I am focused on owning fewer stocks than many stocks. I think as Kelsey said earlier, you really want to know what you're investing in. And it's hard to know a lot about many, many different things. And um, I believe, I think there's many different ways to approach it, but I believe in fewer stocks than many stocks and knowing your few stocks very well. Perfect. Yep. And GARP is growth at a reasonable price that, that you heard Alan talking about right there. Alan, any concrete goals that you're trying to achieve with your investing? Ooh, uh, I think, yeah, I, I think um, eventually it's financial freedom. I know a lot of people say that, but uh, I think, uh, I'm going to take that back. I think my goal is just to put my money in good places because I read a phenomenal article this morning about the best thing you can be doing as a 23-year-old is focusing on income and generating cash, right? That um, if I make 50% or 80% on a stock in a $1,000 portfolio, that's very different than a ten dollars or $50,000 portfolio. So right now, I think at my age, I'm really focused on my fundamental approach, my process to uh, finding stocks. Good answer, Alan. I thought you for a second were going to say buying the Cleveland Browns. And I hear that they're probably at a bargain right now. Maybe that's growth at a reasonable price for you. <laughs> Guess what? That, that's still the dream. <laughs> that's my real <laughs> that's a value, a value stock for you. Uh, Kelsey, yeah. let me bring this to you too. Can you tell me a little bit about your investing process personally as an investor? Yeah. And I, maybe I'll answer also the question you asked, Alan, first of why do I invest? Perfect. Um, it's wealth creation and maintenance for me. And I think people forget that investing isn't just making more money, it's beating inflation. You know, if you keep your money in cash, it does you no good. Unless, I mean, there are high yield savings account that do some good and they allow you to, you know, maintain an emergency savings account. But beyond that, um, inflation only decreases our buying power over time. And I'm highly aware of that. You know, $100 uh, today is not going to be what $100 is worth in 20, 30 years. 
So it's always been for me, not only beating uh, inflation of, you know, 2% year over year, I always think of my benchmark being, you know, the S&P 500, like any classic hedge fund. Um, I, I worked in the hedge fund industry for five years. So uh, I've always looked at my investment or my portfolio over the long term. Um, it's highly diversified and probably a little bit more boring. I have a mix of ETS uh, across U.S. emerging markets, uh, both value and growth stocks. And I also have a mix of investment grade fixed income. Um, I add in investment grade fixed income because I recently uh, quit my job. So I know for a certain amount of time I have no income. So I wanted to move, shift my portfolio from being extremely aggressive to being slightly more conservative. That being said, I, I, I did not sell out of all my equities because I still wanted to make my money work for me during the time period in which I was working to generate an income with my new business. But um, yeah, I scaled back risk, but I still always believe in taking calculated risk. Um, and I, I, I guess I don't know if I'll mention, but some of the companies or the ETFs I look at are, you know, QQQ and ArtK and IJH, ArtK being I'm a massive um, fan of Kathy Wood. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's really and on a, on a monthly basis when I was making a, a monthly income, I would just rebalance my portfolio based on the allocation that I had set for myself which was, again, a mix of U.S. and uh, emerging equities um, or non-U.S. equities and, and some, some bonds. That's perfect, Kelsey. So you, you pointed out several times that there is a difference between wealth creation and wealth maintenance. You're always trying to beat inflation, of course, as the minimum, so you're not decreasing your purchasing power over time. But you also like the idea of having it support your lifestyle, support your goal of empowering uh, women investors, uh, younger investors, whoever it might be, and kind of living the lifestyle that you want for a long period of time. Exactly. I feel that, you know, I can't preach this to women if I don't practice what I preach. And I firmly believe in investing. I think that, you know, education first, being a part of the conversation next, and then action is the last you can take. So educate yourself, you know, start to ask questions, um, step into the conversation, even though it's intimidating. And once you start to get more comfortable, you will take action. And the action is only going to benefit you if you're, you know, invested appropriately. Perfect. And my last question for both of you is going to be for one piece of advice to your audiences today. And Kelsey, I'll come to you first on this, of course, um, to give you a little bit of time to prepare this. Uh, and audience at Seven Investing is, is individual investors mostly. We talk a lot about trends. We talk about styles of investing. We talk about more important longer term things they should be thinking about. But if you could just tell one thing to your audience uh, that will also be listening, hopefully, to this podcast on our Seven Investing podcast, what would one piece of investing advice be from Kelsey Wellick? Don't get intimidated by people that tell you what to do because investing is so personal. Um, I met with a woman today who was like, how do I get started? And I just asked her, you know, again, the questions you asked me today, what are your goals? Um, and if people aren't willing to ask you what your goals are, they really shouldn't be in the, in the, in the business of telling you what to do. They should be asking you what works for them and find the communities that you engage with, you know, um, 
I think finding people that align with your values is also so important and joining in the conversation with them. If you want to start actively investing, then, you know, engage in communities like Allen's, uh, engage in communities where people are talking about active trading and, and, and align your values with people that you agree with. Um, you know, if, if those people are people that are much more conservative, then follow along with them. Um, it's all about finding what's right for you and what you can tolerate. Um, and uh, it's finding comfort because money is stressful. Money is risky. Money is uncomfortable. So it's all about reducing stress and, and finding what's uh, going to make you the most happy long term. That's a great answer, Kelsey. Don't be intimidated. Alan, let me bring it to you. But before I ask you the question, I'd like to give you a chance to talk about your community, too. How can we find you on Twitter or with Cruising Altitude? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter, just my name, at Alan Sokloff, at, that's A-L-A-N-S-O-C-L-O-F, and then the link to the Substack for Cruising Altitude is in my bio, so I think that's the easiest way. Perfect, yeah. And what's one piece of advice you'd give to the audience listening to the podcast today? Yeah, I think the, the power of patience, the ability to be patient is so integral, especially these days, I think both for investing and in life. I think it's important to surround yourself with long-term thinkers, doing things like turning off your phone for a little bit here and there, going on walks, do actions to, that lead to patients being rewarded. That's fantastic advice as well. Uh, Kelsey and Alan, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you both for joining me here on the 7 Investing Podcast today. Thank you so much for having us, Simon. We're so grateful to be here. Thank you, Simon. You're the man. We have a lot of fun with this. I think that it's really important to realize that, that investing is so personal and it's not just all about seven investing. This is why we want to partner with great organizations like Alan and Kelsey have. We're trying to spread financial awareness and make people into better investors. We think that there really is something to this. You can compound wealth over time that really empowers you to do great things in your future as we've talked about here today. So thank you. I hope this was enjoyable and, uh, and also educational for everyone listening. And once again, we are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7 Investing. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.